0: Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston.
1: Welcome into another edition of Mile High Magazine. I'm Murphy Houston, and today joining us is Janine Klippel. She's the Director of Development and Public Relations for Gateway. She's been associated with Gateway since 1990, volunteering for three years, and continued her association as a paid employee. Got a degree in speech communications and journalism, and so do I. How about that, Janine? That's huh? awesome. Yeah, but you're doing better work than I am. You're helping people. Well, <laughs> you just, are today too. I'm just talking to people as much as we can. Well, thanks for coming in.
2: My pleasure. Thank you uh, for having me.
1: Well, let's talk about uh, Gateway Domestic Violence Services and what's that all about cuz you know, I'm not un- I'm not familiar with that. And maybe a lot of people in Denver aren't.
2: Well, I would be happy to. So since 1979, Gateway has been serving Arapahoe County and the city of Aurora that sits in two counties. And we have um, basically the bridge into everything is our 24-7 crisis line. And people can call that and get into any of our services. And we also, um, in addition to the emergency shelter, which is what they're going to probably call mostly for, we have an extended stay shelter to offer longer term housing for people because housing can be a big obstacle for people to get out of a relationship. relationship. We also have non-residential counseling where people can come in, basically outpatient counseling. They can do group, individual, whatever they want. And that helps them um, maybe decide they're going to leave the relationship or find a way to um, heal it and stay safe while they're dealing with that.
1: So back up a little bit. You're only in Aurora
2: we're in Arapahoe County, Arapahoe county. Yes,
1: but if you're not in Arapahoe County, can we still take advantage of what you offer?
2: Absolutely. And sometimes that's the only way for somebody to stay safe. I'm if thinking. they're Yes, exactly. Yeah. So maybe somebody in our county lives too close to our, one of our two shelters and we have to refer them to another county and the same can happen in someplace else. Or maybe they work closer to Jefferson County or something. Um, So they would maybe want to go there and stay in that shelter. So yes, all the shelters work together, but we are the shelter that serves Arapahoe County and anybody can come.
1: And we talk about domestic violence. You're talking about husband-wife situation? Or are children involved with that? That's
2: a great question. So domestic violence by definition is intimate partner violence by somebody who's your current intimate partner or a former intimate partner that might be stalking you or um, still trying to abuse you. It's um, certainly um, children can be affected because they live in the home many times. And so um, statistics say over 10,000 children in this country alone witness domestic violence firsthand.
1: How big a problem is that in our metro area, or even in the state of Colorado? Domestic violence—you don't. I mean, obviously, you're not going to hear it on the news, but I live in a pretty good neighborhood. I don't hear those things, but maybe you don't because it's so private. But is that a big problem here?
2: Domestic violence is a is at epidemic proportions. Wow! In every place and so i think sometimes people think well i do live in a more affluent neighborhood or i'm a doctor this could never happen to me but domestic violence happens everywhere there's nobody who's immune to it so it's in every religion every neighborhood every job um everything it's everywhere and um in the metro area alone on any given day there's at least 200 true crisis calls that go into the shelters in our metro area um and every given day every given day Wow. in our metro area alone. And so it's it's pretty incredible. We have at Gateway in one year around 10,000 crisis calls, and we will serve um, over 10,000 nights of shelter for adults and children and, and pets.
1: Pets as well? Yes, sir. Wow, oh, my gosh. You're opening a whole new window for me here. I mean, I can't visualize that kind of a situation. And it, is it on? I mean, is there repeat calls for that? I mean, you hear these stories about well, somebody's afraid to leave their spouse. I mean, whatever, for whatever reason. I mean, is that a big deal, too? Is that And you get multiple calls from the same situation?
2: Oh, definitely. Statistics show that a woman or a victim will leave five to seven times before they leave for good or are killed trying to leave because domestic violence um, is about power and control. And the most dangerous time for somebody to leave is when somebody leaves. And so um, that's because the abuser has lost all power and control over this person. And so um, sometimes, you know, the, the victim will come back to us several times and call many, many times before maybe they decide to make a decision and move on or do something.
1: And is that private? Is that anonymous? I mean, you kind of keep it to yourselves if they're crying out for help
2: oh definitely and that's a great point that i want anybody listening if you might need support to know that when you call our crisis line you don't even have to say who you are if you're just calling to to talk that's fine if you're um, wanting to come into our shelter program we are completely confidential our locations are confidential and we would never tell anybody that you called it's always private we want to keep you safe
1: That's the bottom line, isn't it? That's
2: the bottom line. Uh,
1: Exactly. And there's no cost involved with this, too. Because I've heard people say, well, I don't know, my insurance is not going to cover it. I don't think there is a cost for help.
2: Well, we are a nonprofit, so right. there's not a cost. Uh, we, women are um, and children and their pets are allowed to come. Um, really, anybody anybody who identifies as a victim of domestic violence is allowed to use our programs. And um, we, on our outpatient counseling, we do charge a sliding scale fee. But if you can afford nothing, you will not be refused services. And if you can afford a dollar, you will. That's totally fine.
1: And when some of these victims of domestic violence finally make that decision to move on, do they stay in your shelter or do you put them like in a safe house of some kind?
2: Our shelter is a safe house. So yes, that's what we do. And um, on any given night, we're full. And so if we are full, that's when we will work with other shelters and they work with us so that we can house anybody uh, that is reaching out for help.
1: So when you say full, how many people is that?
2: On any given night, it's between 42 and 45.
1: Wow. That's a... A lot that's a lot on a given night mm-hmm. yeah, you guys are doing some and great. we're just one shelter yeah in the metro say, area you're just one place mm-hmm. oh that's unbelievable So Janine, talk more about sheltering pets. That kind of caught me off guard. I never thought about pets.
2: I know. And I think that's something that people don't think about very much. But anybody in the house can be used as a pawn or can be victimized. And so many times we were finding that um, victims were calling and they needed help, but they wouldn't leave because they didn't want to leave their pet behind. And I can't blame them, you know, because sometimes they're also the victims of abuse. That might be one way to control the victim is by threatening their pet that they love and so we realized that this was an obstacle for women and we are not here to be an obstacle we are here to be a support so in 2009 we opened up what we call the bailey project which um is our pet project and so um victims can bring their family pets with them anything but livestock um, and um <laughs> that might be a little tough. yeah that would be a little tough and um we're one of actually the f- few shelters in the country that allow pets to come and we're hoping that Soon all shelters will because once we did it, once we opened it up, we had people bringing their pets all the time.
1: Well, I would imagine that probably as close as people are to their pets, a tremendous amount of security. Absolutely. When they're, when they're going through a very insecure situation. And that's,
2: yes, that's a great point. It's not just to keep the animal safe, but sometimes for the children and for the victim, right. it's such a wonderful um, support blanket or security blanket that, you know, you have your pet. And it helps other people in the shelter, too. I mean, you know, touching fur, is it's it's healing.
1: Well, that's why they take them into hospitals, dogs, right. because they, there's something magical about pets, in particular dogs, where you yes. just they have an aura about right. them that can be very relaxing in a tough situation.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Well, that's it's a good thing. So, are the when you talk about the pets being are they abused physically by the same yeah. person that might be in, abusing their spouse or
2: many times, many, really? many, 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 many times. Oh my! Yes, if, if there's a pet in the home where there's domestic violence, there's a seventy-five percent. At seventy-five percent of them are being abused. Oh. And we've heard um, people say that their pet was actually killed in front of their eyes. So we know this is incredibly important that we would Open this service up, and it's just been really ideal. There's there's things you have to do, of course, that you have to protect the safety and make sure that the pets are you know um, okay. But we do work with some um, great um, places in the community that will help our um, pets if they come in and they need help if they've been hurt. Um, one of them, I just want to give a shout out to Broadview Animal Clinic and Aurora. They've been amazing right. and helpful to us, helping any pets that we bring in to them that might have yeah. been hurt or didn't have their shots. You know whatever they might need, so they sure, can stay in the sure. shelter setting.
1: What a, what a great thing. Have you seen, and, and you've been over there at uh, Gateway for a long time, has that need, is there more domestic violence now than maybe 10 years ago, five years ago?
2: Well, yes, and our numbers have definitely grown over the years, and of course our um, number of people that have moved here has grown as well. But I also think that because over the years, domestic violence has come to the forefront with um, OJ, with um, a lot of other people that are sports figures and stuff, when more and more people are talking about it, so maybe people are realizing that this is wrong, this is a crime, and there is help for me. So I'm not sure if it's necessarily happening a lot more, but I think people are willing to come forward more.
1: Well, and getting the word out about a place like Gateways helping that there's help out there for them.
2: Absolutely. And that's the most important thing. You know, of course, we want to raise money. Of course, we want to have community support. But we also, most importantly, want anybody in the community to know where we are, how to reach us. If you or a family member or a loved one or a colleague or a friend is in dire need of our services, now you know where we are.
1: Yeah, it's good to know that. We're talking to Janine Klippel, Director of Development and Public Relations for Gateway Domestic Violence Services. Unfortunately, we have to talk about it. But the good news is there's help, and you guys are providing that. Here's a question I have, and I often wonder when there people are in domestic violence, and it's men and women. I mean, men yes. also have the same problem. People yes. think automatically, well, it's women get are, nope. you know, being abused by their husbands. It, it could be the other way. Why don't they just leave immediately? What is it? Why do they hang around? Is it because of the kids, or are they insecure, or how am I going to live? What is that?
2: I understand. And that's a question that um, could make me feel really defensive at first, understanding the dynamics of domestic violence. But I think more importantly, it's a fair question. And people feel like that. If it was happening to me, I would just leave. I wouldn't put up with that. I that's That would never happen to me. The truth is, is that domestic violence is insidious. It doesn't happen on the first date, the fifth date. It, it happens slowly over a period of time. And then as the victim, you say, I don't even know how I got here. But the reason that women stay, that men stay, that any, buddy's days is however many are out there that are abused it's that many different reasons they all have their own unique situation that's preventing them but a lot of the things you said maybe there's insecurity the children the children they don't want to have the children be homeless take them out of their home away from their school Maybe um, it's something against their religion, certainly finances. Oh, never thought about that, yeah, religion a aspect lot of, of that. Yeah, absolutely. There are some religions that say, you know, God hates divorce. Um, you know, I don't have a personal line up to God, but I do believe that God would hate abuse more. And
1: You would think.
2: He would think. I mean, it biblically says. But... Um, you know, that's a reason. Finances are a huge reason. Um, they don't want to be homeless. And, you know, they love this person. Like I said, this doesn't happen on the first or second date. Unfortunately, if it, you know, I mean, if it did, it would be great because nobody would be in these situations. They'd yeah, leave right, right away. Right. But they wait until, you know, they've fallen in love with them. And they don't want the relationship to end. They want the abuse to end.
1: Exactly. That's a really good point. Strong way to end that little segment there for sure. Why? How long do they stay with you? if they've said, okay, I'm out, I can't do this anymore, they come to you, how long are they allowed to stay?
2: So we have two shelters, as I mentioned. One is an emergency shelter, and that's a traditional 30 to 45-day shelter. And then from there, we have an extended stay shelter because housing here is... Oh. Unbelievably difficult to put it mildly yeah, right. and it's not affordable. And so that was uh, making many um, victims go back because they had nowhere to go and live. And so we opened the extended stay shelter and that is an additional 90 to 120, 150 days. Right. So during that time we can help them get on housing lists, help them maybe get a job, help the transportation, get the kids in a new school. So um, it can really be anywhere from, you know, one day to six months.
1: And you're offering all facets of support just based on what you said. Yes. I mean, you're helping them get their life going down the right path. Exactly. With jobs and the kids and school mm-hmm. and transportation because that's gotta be something that just races through the yeah. the mind of a victim. What am I gonna do? How am I gonna handle all of this? And you're really helping with that.
2: We really try and when they're staying in shelter, not only do we provide the basic things that we all use every day, our shampoo, our brush, our um, food, clothes, but we also provide counseling and support and job readiness and resume help and just anything that, you know, we meet clients where they're at. That's basically all I can say. So, you know, everybody comes with different needs and different um, situations and obstacles. And um, we are there to try to help with all of those things.
1: Well, talk about the kids a little more, because that really strikes home to me, seeing kids involved with us. How do you support them? How do you handle the children?
2: Well, we, you know, with children, um, They learn what they live, as we know. And so, you know, um, statistics show that a young boy who um, grows up in a home watching domestic violence is 700 times more likely to grow up and abuse his partner. It's just they learn what they live. And so what we try to do is teach nonviolent ways to resolve conflict to children through play therapy. We try to help them with some of the pain that they're going through from what they're seeing, maybe from moving away from their home and their friends. We do that through art therapy and then talk therapy, depending on their age. Right. Obviously, you know, three year olds aren't going to be able to be very verbal, but they can tell us a lot through play therapy. And we're there, we also are there to help with help the parent to say, you know, these are some things that you can do to support your child and give them maybe some nonviolent discipline skills because maybe they don't know those either.
1: Probably not.
2: Probably not. And yeah. so um, it's it's really a lot of ways. And, and one of the biggest things, you know, is this is something volunteers can help with, just having somebody come in and color with them or play a game with them, you know, play Monopoly, go outside and play basketball. You know, that really shows kids that, you know, okay, I'm in a hard situation, but I matter. I'm important. And somebody cares about me.
1: Good point. Uh, it's hard enough to see the, for the children to see their families going through this problem. But friends are so important. Do you try to keep them in the schools where they've been going, try to keep them around their friends a little bit for that kind of security?
2: Well, all of that of course is up to the parent because the parent is the expert on their life and we don't want to tell them what to do. But if the parent um, decides that it's safe for them to go back then and go to their same school, then of course they can do that. Um, Sometimes it's not safe because they're coming to us trying to hide from this person who's been abusing them. And so maybe it wouldn't be safe for the kids to go back to that school where the abuser knows the school is. So we have some... Um a relationship basically with all the schools in the area by our two shelters where they just allow the children to come in and go out without any of all the paperwork you have to do to sure, get into schools sure. and all of that. And so that works out really well for the, for the kids. But if school is in session, children are required to go. They have a bedtime. They have, they have to keep a routine because sure. that's one of the best things for anybody. That's why that we have routines, right, you know, in right. spite of ourselves, we have a routine every day. Yeah, good point. And um, so we really want to keep the children in a routine as much as possible, because this is a big disrupt for them going oh. into a communal living shelter, you know, as kids. And so we, we really have wonderful advocates and counselors that are there to support the children because they're the future. And we need to let them know that, you know, this isn't right. And what's happened isn't your fault. You aren't the one who required to fix it. Uh, but, you know, and you're cared about.
1: I'll bet you see these uh, children do carry an amount of guilt.
2: Absolutely. Because they still maybe love the abuser. Yes. You know, that's one of their parents. Exactly. And they feel bad for that. And it's like, you know, we understand that and we let them know, of course, you love that person. It's your dad. It's your mom. And um, you know, it's not your fault for loving them and you and or they feel guilty because their parent got hurt and they didn't step in. Especially teenage boys. You know, they feel like I really should have been protecting my mom better. And it's like it's not your job to do that. And maybe you would have gotten really hurt, too, doing that. So that's you're in the right place now. And so one of the things that we offer is a safety plan for kids and for the uh, victim, because that's very important, because a lot of times they go back and we respect that. Again, they're the expert on their life. And the only way to find out if it's going to change is to go back and find out. And we're always there for them, though. And so we try to give them a safety plan. And let the and really give the the kids support. And we I just might mention that we're you know many shelters don't allow teenage boys to come to the shelter, but we do because um, um, a mom or dad might not leave if they have to leave their 15 year old son behind. You know, right. so we understand that. So what we really try to do is not give obstacles. We try to really make it where it's easy. And it's not... I mean, it's already going to be hard. I shouldn't even say it's easy. It's already really, really hard, but having to leave your pet or your teenage son behind, you know, we just don't want that to be part of the equation.
1: Well, what do you say? A safety plan, what does that entail?
2: A safety plan is is a lot of things. It's maybe... in a safe place that you can hide something or with a friend or a neighbor that you know is safe, hide some money, hide some extra car keys, hide um, an extra phone, maybe some, if you have little kids, maybe some diapers, maybe some toys that they would like, um, their medicine, an extra thing of their medicines if they're on medicine. You know, really anything that you might need if you had to leave really quickly. Maybe an extra set of clothes for all the children. Um, sometimes they literally leave in the middle of the night in pajamas and their feet. And wow. so, you know, just anything that you, and, and also, another important thing is any important paperwork, you know, health records, social security numbers, so that if, in case you need those things to help get housing or to move somewhere, you know, you have all that. Even if it's just a copy of those things, that's enough.
1: Well, that's quite a plan. Who yeah. would, I mean, you wouldn't think about that without some help. Right. And that's what you provide.
2: That's what we provide. Right. And if you're planning to stay, some a safety plan also can be. What does a child do if they hear the parents start arguing? You know, what do they? Where do they go? Should they get in the middle of it? Should they hide? Um, you know, like maybe you would give them um, a code word and say, if if you know, mommy says the word blue, that means grab your baby brother out of the crib and you run next door, or you go and hide under the bed and call nine one one. You know, just things like that. Don't go in the kitchen because in the kitchen there's a lot of weapons that you oh. might not think of. Weapons, knives, you know... Um big coffee pots frying pans you know things that could really hurt don't go in a bathroom because you usually get stuck in a corner in a bathroom you know so we just just different plans to survive it's awful that people have to to do that in their own home i mean you know we're i mean i'm assuming with you but i'm blessed that i can in my own home i'm safe and i'm i'm exactly i'm I'm loved and it's all fine there but not everybody has that and it's unimaginable that that would happen in someone's homes but it's happening in a lot of homes
1: wow it seems so foreign to hear me talk about, hear you talk about this, because I am blessed as you are, that and my kids are, and my grandkids are. And I'm thinking, that is going on. Yeah, it's incredible. It can be
2: happening in your neighbor's home, and you would never know. Wow.
1: Well, let's talk about how you make money. I mean, it, you're not, you do offer the services free. Yes. Uh, maybe some counseling. There might be some charges. But how do you support your organization? How do you support Gateway Domestic Violence Services?
2: That's a great question, and we, we couldn't do it without the help of the community. Everything from interviews like this to get the word out, but also from grants, foundations. And one of the things that we have every year, and it's the greatest way to raise money, is when people can have fun. Yes. And we have our largest uh, annual fundraiser. It's called Around the World in 80 Wines, Ooh. and that's exactly what it is. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> yes, it is, um, it is definitely what it is. It's 80 wines from around the globe, and you can come in. It's a two-hour tasting with hors d'oeuvres. And during that time, there's a silent auction. And as soon as the tasting is done, then we go into uh, a sit down dinner where we have a live auction. One of our survivors speaks and talks about how Gateway has supported them and, um, We try to raise as much money as we can through that. It's a ton of fun. Um, We're at our 15th annual this year. It's at the Wellshire Event Center. And the date this year is September 21st. We would love to have everybody there. We would love to sell out. Uh, You can find out more if you want to um, go on on to our website, which is gatewayshelter.org. Again, gatewayshelter.org. Or you can call and talk to me. Um, and our number is 303-343-1856.
1: So you answer the phone yourself, Janine?
2: Many times. Yes, I do. So you're doing it it all, right? It's a small agency, (laughs) and we all wear every hat, but that's okay.
1: That's how it gets done.
2: It is how it gets done. Well,
1: And and I know there are uh, some friends of ours listening right now that, you know, maybe financially they can't get involved that way, but are there other ways they can help you out? Can they volunteer? I mean, can they help educate, as you mentioned earlier, come play basketball with somebody?
2: Absolutely. Yes, they can volunteer and we use volunteers in all of our programs and we always need volunteers. So, um, you, you know, if you want to do that same phone number, you can find out more information on our website about volunteering and um, if you can support, um, even if it's just by going to the fundraiser or even, you know, every penny helps. Sure. It all adds up to the big picture and you can go to our website again and it's easy to donate on our, on our website or you can call and we can take your information over the phone.
1: And you also get grants. How do, you, how do you do that? Is that a government thing? Or? Some
2: are government grants right. and some are private foundations and other people. So it just depends. It's a it's a lot of work. You have to write grants. You sure. have to be accepted and you have to, um, it's a lot of competition out there. And I will say that there's so many nonprofits out there doing amazing, amazing work. Right. So anytime somebody chooses to donate to Gateway, volunteer for Gateway, attend Gateways event, we are beyond grateful because we know that they had their choice of where they could go and they came to us so um, we really appreciate that
1: well you're doing good work if I'm going to be a volunteer is there any particular education level I have to have no. or some training I have to have
2: so you don't you just have to have a heart for it in the beginning uh-huh. and um, if that you have that then you do need to pass the criminal background check of course and um, a reference check and then you go to through a 12 hour in person and a 12 hour online training so a total of 24 hours of training prior and then just on the job training and we just we just let you at it um, you and know.
1: set your own hours up basically whenever you can be there?
2: Absolutely, yeah. and depending on the program, some we have a court advocacy program as well that I didn't speak about that helps victims going through the court process because domestic violence oh, is a crime. Right, that is
1: a crime, good and point, let's talk so, about that.
2: Um, that's at the Aurora Municipal Court. And so when um, the police are called to a home where there's domestic violence, they, if there's probable cause, they arrest the, the offender and the victim is subpoenaed to be at our office the next business day. And so when they come to us many times, they're coming with fresh injuries, they're coming terrified. Um, And so our advocates are there to greet them and to help them with the whole court process depending on what they want to do Um, if the uh, maybe the victim says this is the time I'm leaving then we can help get them into shelter we can sit with them through the through the trial because that can be really scary you're facing you're facing basically somebody who you might have children with somebody you live with yeah um, and you're you're in court against them it's it's very very terrifying and so we use volunteers to help with that as well but of course if you volunteer there it's only when the courts are open which which is sure, Monday to sure. Friday, 8 to 5. Sure. But in our shelter programs, those are 24-7. So there's always some place that a volunteer, there's a time that they can be free to do it.
1: When you say 24-7, what phone number do people call for help if they're reaching out?
2: It's This is our crisis line, and please write it down if you need it, if you know anybody, 303-343-1851. Again, that's 303-343-1851. Somebody will be there 24-7-365.
1: And you turn nobody down.
2: We will give everybody the support they need and the resources they need.
1: So if you're out there and you are scared and you're going through this, there is help.
2: There is, and we aren't going to judge you. We're just going to listen and we'll we'll follow your lead. What you want to do, we will try to help you reach whatever that goal is. We are not going to force you to do anything.
1: So you mentioned earlier in our conversation here today about counseling and classes people can attend. Is that true? Is that like help if they need? Yes, yeah. yes.
2: That's our non-residential program. So right. so that... Um- You know, you would call the same crisis line number and tell them you're interested in that, and then they would hook you up and get into individual counseling, group counseling, whatever you want, or both. Some people really benefit from being in a group with other people that are having a like experience with them, and some people want the individual as well. They need that extra support that is available to women, men, children. In, um, pretty much almost every night of the week.
1: And that's done anonymously, too. I Absolutely. Mean, they don't want their Absolutely. spouse to know that they're getting some yeah, Definitely. Privacy is, I'm sure, you're number Confidentiality one. Confidentiality yeah. and
2: safety is number one.
1: You're doing some good work. Uh, things are happening over there at Gateway. Positive things. Do you see a lot of good outcomes sometimes that always end badly with these families?
2: No. I mean, that's the beauty is that there's always hope, and um you know we have some wonderful success stories and of course we have some sad stories sometimes um the victim can do everything right and still the offender will stalk them and do something horrible so you know there's no guarantee that that we can keep anybody safe but we can give all the right instructions and we can try to help with a no contact order a restraining order and just give the safety plans and hopefully it will be a great outcome
1: I can't imagine how that fear though of them being found even once mm-hmm. down the road they're relocated relocated, you have to be living with that fear. How do you well, get how do you get rid of that if ever?
2: I don't know that you do. A lot of our clients have PTSD. It's um, you know, and sometimes they have survivor guilt because, you know, um maybe one of their kids were killed or they, you know, um their grown up kids are now experiencing in themselves and they have survivor guilt because sure. their, their mother was killed in the past. I mean I think there's just a lot of things and so I don't know that the trauma ever totally leaves somebody who's right. been terrorized and right. victimized in their own home. I mean they come back kind of with the same kind of situation like prisoners of war because they really are like a prisoner and they're, they're fighting a war in their house.
1: Really good point. That's and very true. so,
2: um, you know, I, I think it's really difficult, but we're there. We've been there for almost 40 years and we will keep being there.
1: God bless you for that. That's that's a good thing. Any final words before we say goodbye?
2: We we just hope that um, anybody who might be able to help us financially or volunteer or come to our event or anybody that needs us knows where we are and how to find us and they'll reach out.
1: Well, let's share some of those phone numbers again and the website, because okay. people are listening and they don't write it down. So if you need 24-7 help, the number?
2: 303-343-1851.
1: Would that be the same number to call if you just have questions?
2: Yes. Uh, yes. You can call that number even if you want to reach out, um, me. They'll They'll transfer it to me. So that's, that's a good. good number to have.
1: So you don't take calls. You personally don't take calls 24-7, do you, Tom?
2: <laughs> I have to
1: sleep. <laughs> yeah, I was going <laughs> to
2: say. I have to sleep. I have my own family. I need to go home.
1: That's <laughs> a good thing. And the website, if people are just looking yes. for more help?
2: Yes, gatewayshelter.org.
1: Talk about, again, your big fundraiser, September 21st at the Welsher. Sounds like a good time. It's
2: wonderful. And um, that is um, going to be a big-time event. And if you want information, just give us a call, and we'll help you get tickets.
1: And that number would be, again?
2: 303-343-1851.
1: Well, Janine good. how'd you go from volunteer to boss? I mean, how, do, how does that happen?
2: Well, I guess it was just the right place for me. I fell into the right place.
1: God works that way, you know.
2: I would agree with you 100%. Yeah,
1: for sure. Well, thank you for coming in and continued success and the good works you're doing at Gateway Domestic Violence Services. Thank you. And you guys have a great day, and thank you for listening to Mile High Magazine. We'll talk to you next week.
0: Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan.
3: Each spring, the Conference on World Affairs brings to the University of Colorado at Boulder experts in international and domestic affairs, cultural topics, and contemporary developments for a week of panel discussions, presentations, and performances. Greetings again, I'm Adam Morgan. At this year's event, we touch base with two of the Newsmaker panel participants at the conference, Professor Susan Block, following her session, Who Gets Served? Opening the Door to Discrimination and former Utah Judge William Thorne after his session, Race and Ethnicity, Facing Our Past. We begin with Judge Thorne. Judge William Thorne served 13 years on the Utah Court of Appeals, and for over 25 years, he served as a tribal court judge circulating among 12 states, including Colorado. A Native American, Judge Thorne is the current Vice President of the National Indian Justice Center. America has a racial problem, supposedly. We always say America, but I've always said that. Maybe conservative Americans have more of a racial problem than more progressive or mainstream Americans do, and whoever controls the narrative makes it seem like all the rest of us do. But I guess we have to still look back and resolve stuff in the past before we can go ahead to uh, the future.
4: At, At least from my perspective, I think you have to first acknowledge what happened, but then you also have to look at the impact and the continuing impact because we know for example from genetics that exposure to trauma can affect the way that you react your physiological your body floods with chemicals fight flight or freeze people forget the freeze sometimes that now with epigenetics we know that it's possible to pass those characteristics across generations Uh, so that what happened to your grandparents affects how you are. So, for example, we all know that in junior high school, kids bump each other a lot as they're changing classes. If one kid erupts, they label him a bad kid and they call the police and so forth. But it may be that that's beyond his control, because something in his past, in his early childhood, or even in his grandparents' past, may have physiologically set the stage for him to have minor incidents create that time when his body is flooded with those hormones, cortisol. Fight, flight, or freeze. And the fact that he, something triggered him. It wasn't thought process. It wasn't even necessarily being a bully. If we ask, why did this happen? and we look for an honest set of answers and context, then it helps us solve the problem. But if we simply label him as a troublemaker, we treat him one way. If we label him as a victim, we treat him a different way. If we understand what happened to somebody, so we don't ask the question, why are you that way? What we ask is, what happened that got you here? then we're closer at solving the problem and if our goal is to solve those problems whether it's for kids or for adults or for communities if our goal is really to solve problems and not just win our way we need to look for the context of how did we get here before we start to say then what are the answers
3: now you work with uh, juveniles and with youth what what age level do we have to really start working with them so that we can have a real good positive effect on their path and where they're going? Is this a third grade primary thing? Is this a kindergarten thing or is it an eighth or ninth grade thing? Yeah. I hate to say it, but it's all.
4: There are two periods when the brain grows the most, zero to five in teenage years. That's when the brain goes through the most growth. But trauma can interfere with that growth. And so if the body's flooded with cortisol, it may not grow that next layer of the brain. But we also know now from the science that the judgment centers of the brain, the frontal cortex, are not fully formed until a male, for example, is 26 or 27. So when you ask a teenager, why did you do this thing? And their response is, I don't know. There's a lot of truth in that, because they don't yet have the ability to attach consequences and actions. You can walk them through the process and they can say, yes, I understand that, and yes, I understand that, and yes, I understand that. But their brain is not yet wired to attach consequences and actions. So that's why crime, for example, delinquency, drops off all by itself with no intervention at about 26 or 27 because their brains are now wired to be able to attach consequences to actions so this idea of criminalizing childhood behavior is it's not going to solve anything plus against the background we have of criminalizing normative conduct it's normal for kids to get in a scuffle It's normal for kids to experiment. It's normal for kids to break the rules. But if we attach criminal sanctions to that, now we've labeled them, and now we've disabled them from having other opportunities. So I certainly grew up and did things that I didn't get caught for, that if I had been caught, I might not be where I am today. So why should we criminalize what is really normative growing up conduct
3: education an importance of education and that i think you cited in one workshop that the school district of ferguson the schools are not accredited is that correct it's my understanding
4: and it may have been remedied since then but at the time of the michael brown killing when things exploded the two-thirds of the kids in Ferguson were going to unaccredited schools for which they could if they happened to get a high school degree, colleges wouldn't accept it because they wouldn't, wouldn't have come from an accredited institution. So what we've done is we've consigned people and said, "Well, you need to work your way out of poverty. Education's the way out. And yet we disable them from having the education. They need to get there. On top of that are the underperforming schools, the underfunded schools. I mean, what we have done is we've attached any set of additional weights around the ankles of those kids and then said, okay, you go run the race with all those other kids. It's just, not only is it not fair, it's tragic, and eventually the kids recognize it, and so their response is, why should I even try?
3: I know there was a, the, uh, the recent story of a young girl in Oklahoma who found that the school book that she is using now in 2017 was used by the voice star Blake Shelton in 1982. They have not been able to buy school books or anything else for them there. And now it has gotten to the point, and, and maybe with the advent
4: of technology and electronic books this will change. But school book publishers craft their books to satisfy their biggest customers. What that means is that Texas has a disproportionate impact on what our kids learn. Because Texas buys the textbooks for all the students are the same. Publishers then create what does Texas want in our books and the values in Texas communities are not necessarily those in Oakland, Los Angeles, Seattle, Minneapolis. So we need to if we're looking at education we need to look at what we're teaching, we need to look at who is involved in the process of identifying that, are the communities involved in what's taught, because the perspective of an event is different depending on where you were standing. I mean, from the trial work I I did, an eyewitness, you can have five eyewitnesses, and they all saw different things. Communities see education differently, and we know that if families and communities are engaged in education, the kids have more success. When families are isolated from the education
3: process, kids struggle. That's the key, is having families involved more than having one unified curriculum for the entire country?
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with the Common Core. Everybody ought to learn how to do math. Everybody ought to learn to write clearly. But on top of that, that shouldn't be it. On top of that are what values, what stories can the community weave into this so that it makes sense to kids. Learning a set of facts is one thing. Learning how those facts have affected your family and affect your future makes it come real to those kids. So learning about the westward expansion in a school on a reservation is very different than learning about what did that do and what was that perspective from our community. If you learn the values of all of those things and the reason why you're involved, it helps.
3: You mentioned on a, uh, a reservation. Um, with your Native American roots, you have a very different perspective on immigration.
4: For those people who wanted a wall, my response is we're 500 years too late. But the strength of what this country is is all those people who are willing to come here and work hard. We shouldn't be asking any more than are you willing to work hard, support your family, and support your neighbors. If you're willing to do that, we shouldn't be judging.
3: I think I heard you speaking to a young lady saying about a uh discussion she wanted to have and you said that you had it in law school like 45 years ago and uh don't worry about that and to to really build the relationships there so do we have to do a better job of evaluating the points we want to debate or the things we want to fight about it so or fight about so that we have better outcomes for ourselves as individuals and we can grow from them the the conversation you reference had to do with
4: Uh, a couple of students who had been confronted by colleagues who basically said you're here because of a quota you're not really as good as the rest of us. Uh, And I tried to explain to them that their responsibility was not to change the mind of those people. Their responsibility was to find people within their community, who shared values and who could support each other and to get through. Because 45 years ago when I was in school, that was the discussion people had with me when I went to Stanford Law School, was you're not really, they didn't know my scores, they didn't know my grades, but they assumed because I was a person of color, I wasn't as good, and I only got in on a special admission. All I could do was say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And looking back on what I've accomplished in my life, I've succeeded, I have attempted to help make change, and I'm gonna continue to do that. So for people who are faced with that conversation, my response is live well. Not how much you get, how many things you accumulate, but how many lives have you touched in a positive fashion. If you can count a handful you've lived well, If you can count a double handful, you're a success. If you can count more than that, you're a gift. And for all those young people who are struggling with that idea of maybe I'm not as qualified, my response is, you are here for a reason. Don't let somebody else take you out of the
3: equation because you can make a difference last question i will ask you is how can america do better by its native american populations here first acknowledging what happened and the continuing impact there
4: are places like pine ridge where uh... the unemployment rate is eighty five percent given that why should students go to school and get an education there's nothing to look forward to that's when they resort to drugs and alcohol Recognize that there are values, but it applies not just to Indians, it applies to immigrants, it applies to people in different communities. There are strengths in the community, things that they do that we can learn from. We ought to be looking for things that we can learn, and in exchange, we help. So it's not appropriation when there's an exchange. As we learn the values, for example, tribes have done what's called peacemaking, for a long time, which is you go around and you listen to other people in a, in a problem-solving method. Ann Arbor, Michigan has incorporated that into their state court system and are finding huge successes. There are things in every community we can learn from and make things better.
3: Former Utah Court of Appeals Judge William Thorne one of the notable expert participants at the Conference on World Affairs at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch, stay on your game, and we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend
0: with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore.
5: Hi, it's Melissa Moore. Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Appreciate you being here today. I think we've all heard about the opioid crisis going on here in the state of Colorado, and we're definitely going to dive into that. We've got Robert Worthwine, who's the director of the Office of Behavioral Health. Is that correct? That's correct. With the Colorado Department of Human Services. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, we hear the term opioids all the time. And it's funny because I asked three different people. I said, what are opioids? And they all had three different answers. So what are opioids before we even get into this?
6: Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a class of drugs. And I, I do think most people get them confused. They, they mm-hmm. think either it's heroin or it's um, pills. And it's the whole class. So okay. it, it's, it's, a, it's a broader term to, to capture the type of um, what its impact is on, the, on your neurological functioning.
5: Okay. So when we talk about opioids and it being a crisis, I mean, it makes sense now when you're putting in the oxys and you're putting in the heroin, you put them all in one category. It's not a surprise that it's not just a crisis in our state of Colorado. It's a crisis throughout the whole country.
6: It is a crisis. I mean, you think about pain management, uh, historically, if you went to the doctor and they just, they, they, they want you to feel well and they, they don't want you to be in pain. So they would give you a bunch of pills and you would go home and, um, you might have too many pills, right? and you don't realize because you were given so freely and mm-hmm. without any real hesitation, right? you go home and you just take them thinking that it's not really going to have a lost, lasting impact. The reality is it does. 80% of people with an opioid addiction started with the prescriptions.
5: Is that right? That is really scary. I mean, I know for me personally, I had a couple of different surgeries last year. I had some. I ended up not using them because I just didn't like how I felt, and I did get rid of them. But I, it's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to know, like, okay, how do I get rid of them? You're not supposed to flush them or do anything that would get them in the groundwater. And I know the prescription drug take-back days, those are huge. But I don't think people realize how scary it is just to have them in their house.
6: Talk to your local pharmacist. Um, Especially if you have teens in the house and you have other people, guests coming in the house, you'd be surprised. The number of people that are, that are going to look for those pills because they know really? that a lot of a lot of people have them sitting okay. in their cabinet and they're not using them. Ooh. So really people really must be cautious and go and check their pills that they have. Those that are expired, work with their pharmacists to find the, the local drop-off spot okay. to dispense of their meds.
5: Well, that's actually a really good just public service announcement right there because I'm guilty of it because I know I don't have a problem, so I don't think twice about having them in my pill closet. I'm like, well, I'm fine with them there, and I think there's that always like, should I break a bone, you know, just. that that weird, I'll just have them here in case. But that's not really the best idea. Correct. <laughs> I know you're looking at me like, you are wrong. <laughs>
6: <But it's a laughs> this interview common just station. took a
5: weird turn. <laughs> but it's a, it's a common thing that okay, a lot good. of people are
6: struggling with. You, you are definitely uh, a part of the norm. Yeah, um, and yeah. Because people, exactly, people don't think this is going to be an issue for me until it's an issue.
5: Right, right. And I, and I get it. So tell me this. What is the Colorado Department of Human Services doing to address this opioid crisis? So uh, we are receiving a federal grant at the moment. It's called the State Targeted Response to the Opioid Crisis
6: Grant. It's a two-year grant, and we're we're hoping to get an increase. Um, This grant does several key things. First, it funds 22 opioid treatment programs. And what an opioid treatment program is, is a medication-assistant treatment program. Uh, program that they find other medications that are acceptable that mm-hmm. are that are not going to be um, have the neurological impact uh, in, a, in a negative way that opioids do. Uh, so that it could be methadone, it could be uh, um, bu- buprenorphine, it, it could be a number of different drugs mm-hmm. that the uh, the FDA has said it's okay to, to treat with. And that's part of the key is getting people uh, away from the notion of oh, you're just replacing one drug with another, but it it's a neuropsychological problem so when people get an opioid addiction it's mm-hmm. not just a behavioral thing okay. you actually are changing the chemistry and the structure of your brain really through neural your neurons and i don't want to get too technical well
5: no but, but i mean what you're telling me is the brain is kind of um shifting and it's kind of kind of put, like putting a puzzle back together differently is kind of what you're saying to me
6: absolutely and to expect someone to do that without medication um, we wouldn't expect any. We wouldn't expect someone with diabetes uh, having liver failure. And I'm not trying to compare two. What I'm trying to say is the treatment no, approach. Yeah, uh, needs to be a medical one. Okay. So, um, and that's and that's what we're seeing today, and I, uh, we're noticing not only there's two key components from the medical field is to treat it in a medical component, mm-hmm. but also to treat pain. An alternative ways other than just giving out pain pills.
5: Okay, so really it's, it's definitely twofold to your, and I, if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the things you're saying is like, look, if you have this addiction, if you have something like this with an opioid going on in your life, get help because there are medicines out there that can get you off of it that won't be the cold turkey that you're going to be able to do it and get the support that you need.
6: Absolutely, and the the, the the grants also funding uh, three hundred new primary care providers to to give me, uh, medication assisted therapy. Um, so we're we're excited that not only are we expanding people who specialize in substance abuse, but we're taking primary care physicians and expanding their capacity to help treat folks uh, using medication assisted treatment. You know, the other thing we have done is we distributed seven thousand naloxone kits. What um, are, I don't even know what that is. So naloxone kits is is. Uh, when someone is overdosing and they're going to die, they sort of, they give you a medication, they inject you right away to sort okay. of bring you back and, yeah. and get you okay. to a state that you can be in a, um, you're not going to go into the basically failure, body failure, mm-hmm. uh, brain failure, and it keeps you alive, basically. And we, we've had a, couple, a few hundred people, uh, lives were saved by naloxone kits. So we are... We are getting those out there as well. So we're really excited by that as well.
5: All right. So talking about opioids, the crisis going on, um, something else that you're doing to combat it is an anti-stigma campaign. Is that correct?
6: That is correct. Tomorrow, the governor is going to launch our Lift the Label campaign and it's an anti-stigma campaign. It's really to encourage people to to look at this from a medical uh, brain disorder, neurological disorder approach, mm-hmm. and don't be afraid to reach out to a relative. Don't be afraid to reach out and say, you know what, I need to get medical treatment uh, for, for my condition. And the anti-stigma campaign is, is going to launch tomorrow and the governor is going to announce it and we're, we're really excited about it. That is wonderful
5: because I think unfortunately there is a very negative stigma to being on opioids i mean whenever they show the images on tv and the news and the opioid crisis i mean it's usually not the image of somebody who lives next door to you and yet that sounds like that's a big part of the problem because people get started and they're on a prescription medicine and if you said what you did 80 percent of those people have been hooked because of the prescription if i'm saying that quite right i mean that's that's those are our people next door those are our neighbors and our friends
6: you're absolutely right it's it's our neighbors and our people next door in the campaign we're gonna have ads and we're gonna run ads and you're gonna see people uh, in those ads and you'd be like oh that's just like my neighbor mm-hmm. right uh, this that could be my neighbor that could be my my aunt that could be my relative my sister my child mm-hmm. um, these are people that um, Yeah, we need to get away from this notion that it's someone under a bridge somewhere. I didn't want to say that, but
5: that's exactly the image that pops to mind, because when they do the stories and they cover it, those are the images they put. And you're like, that's why I was like, opioids. Boy, I don't know anybody that's had a problem with that, because I was thinking of opium. You know, I was thinking of these different things like, what is that versus it being a class of drugs that are highly addictive?
6: Yeah, and we need to f- treat the full spectrum. I mean, we need we need to treat folks that are struggling, um, the people that are homeless and people that are not, and mm-hmm. people uh, that are your everyday neighbor as well. Um, so yeah, it can mask itself in, in many different ways.
5: Okay, so tomorrow's the big kickoff for this campaign. It is. How is Colorado different as far as the opioid crisis from other states?
6: I, I don't know if we're, we're vastly different in that. This is a crisis we need to take on. We've heard from our federal, federal partners um, as well. And uh, We've also heard uh, from, from Congress as well that this is a topic that, that every state is really looking at mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how to identify uh, how we could take it on. I will say that Colorado has the, uh, the privilege of working with some physicians and uh, Dr. Stater of the Swedish Medical Center is leading the way on reducing the prescriptions of pain meds and ERs. It's mm-hmm. a pilot he has done and has shown uh, really positive outcomes that there are other ways to treat pain
5: okay are they still prescribing opioids and and just in a smaller number or are they trying to get away from this class of drugs altogether
6: um i think it's a mix i think it's a mix i think it's being more conscientious and i'm not a physician so i'm not going to speak so much to uh how they approach it from a physical standpoint mm-hmm. i know that they're looking at all the different types of approaches and being conscientious of if i prescribe if i do prescribe pain meds mm-hmm. how many pills do i need to give and are there other alternatives like ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. And if you are on a certain regiment of over-the-counter type pills, uh, it can work and be effective as well. I know people are like, that's impossible, but I was really surprised too by hearing it.
5: Right. And I know I did it myself after having surgery for you know melanoma and having this huge open gaping wound on my head. I was like, nope, I would rather have a little bit of a headache and take some Advil and it did fine. You know, and I know that's not the case for everybody. So I don't want to say that. But I believe it, I guess, is my point that there are are other alternatives out there.
6: Yeah, we think this comes in prescribed somehow. It's going to be more effective than something that's over the counter. Right. sort of a a, a fallacy that we have to get past.
5: Right. Right. And I think that's a great point. Why do you feel like as the, you know, director of the Office of Behavioral Health with the Department of Human Services, why do you feel like people should be paying attention to this campaign that's starting tomorrow? Well, I think you said it,
6: it's, it's, we all know, we all know someone, whether we know, we know someone, we know someone Mm -hmm. who's struggling with this. So I think it's really important that, um, that we're, we stay aware of that and we we don't forget. I mean, there are 2.4 million Americans have an opioid addiction today, 2.4. Um, so that's really important. And there were 357 deaths. Related to um, prescription opioid overdose in 2017. It's 37% of all drug poisoning deaths in the state. It's a third of all drug related deaths. That was here in Colorado, those here numbers in Colorado are. Colorado last year.
5: That is huge. Um, what are, you know, as we're talking about the anti stigma campaign and okay, we take away the stigma of opioid use and addiction and abuse, um, what are the different treatment options that are going to be available for people? Or what are the treatment options right now?
6: Sure, um there there are there are different treatment op- options today. One being, as I mentioned earlier, the opioid treatment program, which is the medication assistance mm-hmm. therapy uh, that is um, twenty three sites across the the state right now that are serving fifty three hundred people today. okay, so fifty three hundred people are going to these sites to get medication assisted treatment. Um We also, like I mentioned, we have three hundred new physician providers who are allowed to prescribe. Um, so talking to your primary care physician about, are you one of those doctors? Um, can you help me out? And the, um, this SAMHSA, which is the state federal um, substance abuse organization, it has a website that, can, that you can go look for the state of Colorado okay. and identify um, who in your area or your, who's closest provider to you that can give you medication-assisted uh, treatment as well.
5: So are these all outpatient then, if that's what we're talking about here, outpatient where you go to the doctor, you get medicine to help you get off the opioids, and you take it home and you do it yourself, or are these in-treatment facilities?
6: I think there's a there's a continuum. Uh, the 23 I mentioned are, are outpatient-based, okay. but there are residential programs. Uh, it really depends where you are at mm-hmm. uh, and the, the type of treatment you need. Uh, so it needs to be somewhat individualized. It can't be completely um, a broad brush approach to everyone.
5: Right. So is there, for somebody who's listening right now, that's like, yep, I've got a problem or you know somebody who does, what is the first thing that they can do to get some help? They can call our um, crisis hotline, which applies both for mental health and substance abuse. So
6: if you're struggling with a substance abuse issue, you or a relative or someone you want to call for help, you can call 1-844-493-TALK. Again, it's 1-844-493-8255. And those hotline folks have been trained uh, in this area and they will help you get connected in the right direction.
5: And that's really probably the best place to start, because I'm sure if you're struggling with something like an opioid addiction, it may feel overwhelming. And even if we get past the stigma of having an opioid addiction and because you don't want to be one of those people they talk about on the news. Now it's like, hey, where do I get help? What do I do? What are my next steps? And these people are trained to do just that.
6: They are. And the science today is at a better place than it's ever been to help with this treatment
5: right and you don't have to go it alone and that's another message i feel like i hear you say is you don't have to go it alone um you know mentally physically all of that that there are medicines that can help you there are people that can help you it kind of is that holistic approach to getting you better absolutely all right so tomorrow's the big day the anti-stigma campaign it's called lift the label uh why did you name it that
6: um it's the idea of um one the stigma the idea that that we have in our head as you mentioned someone Mm -hmm. Uh, who's a who's addicted to opioids, but also um, it's it's the concept is peeling back the label on the bottle and seeing the face and the person that's there. And you'll be surprised by who's there.
5: Yeah, I think that's a great way to end this. Thank you so much for being here. Robert Worthwine, the director of office of behavioral health with the Colorado Department of Human Services. Tomorrow is the big day. Lift the label. It's an anti-stigma campaign that the governor is going to be kicking off all about opioid addictions and the crisis going on in our country and in our state. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm Melissa Moore, Mile High Magazine. Thank you again for joining us on this Sunday.
0: You have been listening to Mile High Magazine, a look at the issues in people shaping Colorado presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to public at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.